Hello, welcome, and thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. My name is Sarah Gura, and I am a licensed clinical professional counselor, an EMDR therapist, and a yoga teacher. My practice is the Self-Care Path in Burr Ridge, Illinois, where I treat first responders, and this is Season 3, Episode 4, Men's Psychology. But as always, let's first take a nice deep breath in, expanding the chest, and then allow yourself a slow, relaxing exhale. Take a moment to straighten the spine, to align the neck and head, pull the shoulders down and away from your ears, and again, just relax. One thing I find myself telling men, or first responders in general, is if you want to live like a badass, you must restore like one. You have to relax like one. There has to be some kind of recovery. And those are my three favorite words to remind men that they have to incorporate into their life. They have to incorporate the experience of relaxing, restoring, and recovering. Preferably without guilt and without thinking you are a burden to someone else. So I chose to talk about men's psychology because as a therapist for first responder, first responders, most of my clients are men. And even though I do treat first responder women as well, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today applies to them too because they're in a male-dominated culture and a male-dominated career. So this men's psychology element really exists powerfully in my career and in your life if you're listening to this podcast. So I'm going to start with the idea that we have to define some of the terms that go with men's psychology. The first being male and female. So if you are a female, then your DNA, your chromosomes will say that you are XX. That means you're biologically female. If you are a male, biologically male, your DNA, your chromosomes, 23rd set, will say XY. Now, there are variations of that, but I don't know if that's relevant to our podcast today, but you can look up like other variations like XO, which is Turner syndrome, or XYY syndrome, um, and maybe just know for your information that that has to do with how we define your sex. So on job applications, when it says, what is your sex, you should say male or female. If they ask, what is your gender, different concept, you would be writing masculine, feminine, androgynous. But of course, no one does that. I just think they don't want to put sex on the application because it's the word sex. Uh, but what it means, of course, is your biological uh, assignment as far as male and female. And gender, if I can get to that point, is sort of on this continuum it varies. Like masculinity might be on one side of the continuum and on the other is femininity. And right smack dab in the middle of that would be androgyny. So we all know that men or males are supposed to be masculine and women or females are supposed to be feminine. So what is this androgynous word, right? What does androgyny mean? Well, andro means male, for like androgen, male hormone, and genie, think of gynecology, androgyny, androgynous. The genie part stands for female or woman or feminine. So an androgynous person 
is actually something that I identify with. Like I can go outside and cut the grass. I'll come in and do the dishes. I can go outside and split some wood or at least try. (laughs) And uh, I can come in and nurture a child. So androgynous means capable of, you know, being gender fluid, which actually in psychological research, they say that those people are a little happier, they're more comfortable, they're more resolved and can identify themselves with more confidence. So the androgynous way is a little more realistic is what I think the research is pointing to, whereas being masculine 100% of the time or feminine 100% of the time as a human being just isn't possible, even though we make it this like weird social ideal. But anyway, my hope right now is that you just know that when we ask you what your sex is, we're talking about your biological sex, XXXY, or the variations. And if we ask you what is your gender, we're looking at how masculine, how feminine, or do you have the willingness and ability to be androgynous? So when we talk about men's psychology, sometimes what we're dealing with is the pressure to be a manly man or a manly woman, or at least a woman who's capable of being very masculine in the first responder world. So some examples of these pressures include for first responders, or I'll say for boys and men, which include women who are first responders, um, boys and men are not allowed to cry. Boys and men are not allowed to be tom girls, right? Uh, Girls can be tom boys, but boys cannot be tom girls in this world that we might live in in the first responder um, careers. Boys and men are not allowed to ask for help, and boys and men are not allowed to talk about it. Boys and men are not allowed to express emotions unless it's anger. That's one of the only respected emotions. Boys and men aren't supposed to say that they're cold or show that they can't take or hack any of the elements. Boys and men can't be weak or small or have a small penis it should be large, it should be erect, it should be circumcised, which is a whole nother podcast, I am certain of it. Um, But it's just so much pressure. I mean, we even use the word performance for men's sex. And, you know, we might look at a female performer, that's another podcast as well. But men in the bedroom with the women that they love are expected to perform. And otherwise, they're called having a dysfunction or being inadequate in some way. So it's just a mess altogether right there. But again, boys and men are expected to be masculine. They're supposed to be tough. They're supposed to be strong and powerful, in control of not only themselves, but the situation and other people. They have to be correct. They have to be right. They have to be on top of the hierarchy within their social groups, personal and professional. And if they're not Now at the top of the hierarchy, they should be working towards that position. So again, some pressure and expectation there. Men should also be kind to women. We expect them to be very kind and to say all the right things, to do all the right things on time and share all of the workload that there is in every situation that they are in, again, personally or professionally. And, you know, one of the reasons why we kind of trap men into this social role or uh, schema even and make them identify with it 
is because we need them to do certain things for us in our society. So we need men for war and we need men for dangerous jobs. We need men for laborious jobs. We need men to do disgusting jobs. We need men to do things that most people or what we would think women would not want to do. And one of the ways that we get them to do that is we push them into this little box called masculinity and then we threaten their masculinity. So if you don't do this, you're a sissy. If you don't do this, you're a pussy. If you don't do it, you must be weak. You must be vulnerable. Um, You're the weak link and you should be outed or ostracized. And so we push men quite a bit to perform, I guess I could say that again, and do these difficult things. And if they don't, we threaten their identity. So as a first responder therapist, that men's psychology is always on my mind. I realize that once again, that pressure is a part of what gets in the way of therapy and what gets in the way of relaxing, recovering, and restoring uh, for a lot of my clients. I guess I want to add too that men should be, at least we pressure, put pressure on them to be amazing husbands and amazing fathers and to know about child development and child psychological needs. And we want them to be effective communicators too, uh, with a child and with women, all without social training. And I guess I want to mention that girls get a lot of social training to care for and communicate with others. Um, And when I teach for police and fire departments, sometimes I like to explain about this because there's a barrier in therapy that I am used to addressing. And some of it is just knowing how the communication unfolds. So I think about if, let's say, a boy and a girl both get hurt in the same way, right? They're out playing and the parents are watching. And let's just say both of them fall off a bike and both of them scrape their knee. What's the most likely thing to happen? What do we do? How do we train boys to be men and girls to be women? With the girl, we might run up to her and we might say, are you okay? Or ask, are you okay? And we might say, let me see. And we might even pick her up and hold her close. And if we didn't pick her up, uh, we might set her down or take a look at her knee and say, oh my gosh, you know, that looks like an ouchie. Do you want me to kiss it? We might blow on it a little bit, you know, to see if it eases the pain. And then we'll talk her through how to take care of it. We're going to clean it and we're going to put, you know, a little neosporin on it. We're going to put a Band-Aid on it and it's going to be good as new. And that little girl, by going through all of that, maybe a few times, if not more in her life, she's going to learn this is how you care for someone. You go up to them, you ask them if they're okay, you help them get okay, and you sort of stay a witness or an active participant in the healing until that little girl is okay or that person is okay. But now let's go to what happens to the little boy when he gets hurt. We might yell from a distance, quit your crying. (laughs) Stop your crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Get up, stand up, get back on, you know, rub some dirt in it, kid. I don't want to hear about it. Don't disappoint me. Don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass yourself. And so 
there's this training, right, that he says that the child may say in their mind, you know, if I fall or if I get hurt or if I'm scared or if I don't want to, it doesn't matter. I don't matter. I just need to get up, suck it up so that the situation doesn't get worse. And then they may not totally heal the wound because they weren't supposed to attend to it. They were just supposed to shut up and keep going. Interestingly, a language specialist once explained the story about girls being relational and boys being competitive. Um, And she gave this example. It was actually like a CD set. Now this is going to prove on another level what kind of nerd I am. But I would go to Barnes & Noble and I would buy these like lesson plan CDs. They had those. So back in the day when your car had a CD player, you can pop in these CDs and listen to like college professor professors teach classes. Anyway, this woman was a language specialist and she was talking about girls being relational and boys being competitive. And now this is addressing more of the biological side. The example of the boy and girl getting hurt is kind of social and masculine, feminine, gender-based. When it comes to one's sex, she was saying, as they studied boys and girls, they saw that they were naturally different. How were they naturally different? And how do we have to pay attention to this in men's psychology when we're doing therapy? So long story getting longer, here we go. She gave an example, I think, if I remember it right, of a group of three girls sitting together. And one little girl said, um, my mom wears contacts. So the second little girl chimed in and said, oh, my my babysitter wears contacts too. And, you know, the girls nodded and smiled. And then the third one said, well, my grandma wears contacts. And then the three of them again smiled and kind of agreed that, well, wow, that's interesting. We know three people who wear contacts. And then she went on to explain, you know, how the boys' conversation unfolded. And one of the little boys said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to hit my baseball with my bat and I'm going to hit it all the way high up to the house rooftop. And the boys kind of sat there and nodded. But the second boy said, well, I'm going to I'm going to hit my ball up to the clouds. And then the third boy chimed in pretty quickly and said, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to hit my ball all the way to heaven. And so there's that competitive language Um, where there's a hierarchy, there's this chain of command that developed in the conversation. And the boy who said he was going to hit his ball all the way to heaven is the alpha dominant male. Uh, So they're not relating to one another, they are putting each other in their place. So, of course, working in the police and fire world, I watch this all the time. And I'm like, they're not relating whatsoever. Um, They're competing. But I don't want to interrupt that process. It's not that it's bad. I don't want to teach boys and men to be girls and women. And I don't need them to do something that doesn't come naturally to them. But I want you to understand how to use that power so that you are not a control freak or a controlling asshole. I would rather you instead, you know, use it for good, you know, for love, gratitude, kindness, compassion, and wisdom instead of destruction and war, danger, labor, and other crap 100% of the time. Uh, So girls and women, by the way, definitely uh, experience gender conditioning that is really severe and sometimes disgusting, horrific, and disheartening. 
Um, but I'm not talking about women's psychology today. And as I mentioned, I think a lot of women in the fire service experience a lot of the men's psychology that I'm talking about. And some of the special issues that girls or women go through in the police and fire world, I think deserve probably a whole nother podcast. But I'm going to stick to this men's psychology and I'm going to point out again how important it is to notice what do we expect of the sexes? What do we expect of these different gender roles? And if we could maybe define what is the difference between domineering behavior and dominance? And also, what is toxic masculinity? And do you even think it exists? Because quite frankly, I hate to use the term toxic masculinity. I don't believe that that's a real thing. Because if there is toxic masculinity, then we have to say that there is toxic femininity. And I don't want to say that a female is toxic or a male is toxic, just like I don't want to say masculinity or femininity or even androgyny are toxic. They are all healthy expressions of human genders. So if you ever hear the term toxic masculinity, I think that's that's a scary concept that we should get rid of. What I think they mean, though, when someone says there's toxic masculinity I think what they're trying to talk about is domineering behavior, which could be done by men or women. Domineering behavior is abusive. It's, it's an abusive mentality. It could be uh, abusive physically or mentally, emotionally, all these things. So I think that's important because men are going through a tough time. I know we've heard of the Me Too movement and... Um, after that, there's been all kinds of weird gender confusion, which I'm not blaming on the Me Too movement. I'm just marking it as a time frame. So what I mean to say is some boys and men are uncertain on how to express their alpha nature, their dominance, their masculinity, and their competitive natures. But I do think that domineering and dominance are two totally different things. So again, domineering being abusive, but dominance is a productive leadership quality that men and women can possess. So leadership, of course, I think is something that you learn and it all is all maybe even innate within you. And then you can learn to express that talent as a skill and you can learn more skills so that you are a skillful, skillful leader. But anyway, leadership is productive. It's compassionate. You're a teacher, a consultant, a supervisor, uh, someone who can delegate, participate, and even command as needed, as well as express gratitude. And dominance and leadership is also noticing when someone isn't performing at their best and they help that person overcome obstacles and get them to where they want to be. So I hope you're kind of getting my point about which direction I'm going when it comes to men's psychology. Uh, in a nutshell, I want to take what's natural for each sex and each gender on the continuum and just allow people to express it in a dominant way that is productive, that expresses love, gratitude, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. I don't want to talk about toxic masculinity. 
Um, I'm not talking about domineering behavior because that would be a different podcast too. That would just be about abuse and bullshit. Um, But what I am trying to get across is my style of working with men is understanding this context and knowing that it really is a beautiful expression uh, of being human. So a couple things that I experience is that when I first work with a first responder, male or female, mostly men, in the therapy office, I find myself as being sort of their Jiminy Cricket, right? They're, they're a little bit of consciousness there uh, and teaching them how to be conscious for themselves. And in doing that, of course, there's a lot of connection, a lot of research, a lot of exploring the history and how they got to the point that they're at, as I've explained in previous podcasts. But this also requires quite a bit of humor and this non-judgmental holding space, a safe space for men to be vulnerable enough that I could be their Jiminy Cricket. So it's a normal thing in the counseling process if you are you know, if you have a good match between client and therapist, that after the client leaves the office, the therapist sort of remains in their mind and their memory. And sometimes that doesn't happen right away. Some guys definitely come to therapy and say, yeah, I completely forgot what we talked about last time. And then maybe two or three sessions in, they'll say, can I bring a notebook? Can I bring a pen and paper? And sometimes I write things down for them. I have them take pictures of it with their cell phone so that we kind of start note-taking and therapy there. But it's always an interesting process to see how I am not a part of this person's life whatsoever. Then I slowly become something or someone that they consider in the heat of a moment to make a good choice for themselves And then that story starts to develop. They come back and say, you know, I thought of you and I practice non-reaction or I practice non-judgment or I, you know, practice non-attachment or some of the other coping skills. And it really worked out and it changed the way that I saw the situation and how the outcome landed. But of course, again, with this Jiminy Cricket thing that I'm mentioning, there's, there's humor and again, this holding space that I have for the men in my office. And as that develops and unfolds, we get this like mutual trust and respect for each other, which is so important. Uh, Because if you're going to teach someone how to make different choices and how to change in a way that they trust and respect, Uh, so that they can be their own healer in their own lives. Like, I think that's a fairly big deal. So the Jiminy Cricket eventually fades away is the goal. And they say, you know what, I'm back to not thinking about you anymore. I'm doing it on my own. So that's a neat process, probably that every therapist experience with any client but definitely an interesting process because I am a woman, an androgynous to feminine, sometimes masculine woman who has never been a police officer or a firefighter before. And yet we are always trying to navigate the psychology of these situations. So maybe another thing that I would like to bring up as a female woman therapist working mostly with men is one of the things that I say that really affects men is when I talk about research, about how people who experience shitty things in life 
uh, 75% of those people are very resilient and they are able to process what happened to them and resolve it for themselves in this sort of reprocessing way. But that means that 25% don't. And the reason they found in the research was that 25% of the population that experiences shitty earth-like stuff is they identify themselves as victims. And that is highly motivating to men. They're like, I don't want to be a fucking victim, Sarah. I'm not a victim. And so sometimes that gives them a little bit of a boost to say, I want to be in the 75% resilient group. What do I have to do to get there? And I think we get there, like I said, by developing that Jiminy Cricket moment, the trust and respect, but also very bottom line and down to earth conversations. I'm not sure if I would be fit or a good fit for some clients who are more sensitive and who need to do a lot of figuring out on their own. Maybe they have to do more free association and put the pieces of the puzzle together themselves. Um, My client group doesn't tend to do that. Now, sometimes I can sense that in a person and I provide that, but I think with first responders and with men, my bottom line down-to-earth approach that's very open and candid and relevant for them those relevant discussions is what allows them to really examine what's going on in their life and their personal experiences so that they can get through them, desensitize or reprocess or take the insight, make the choices so that they can change. So part of that is is definitely letting them do their own narrative therapy which is a sort of restorative retelling of their story, which begins, as I've mentioned before, by telling me your whole story of your childhood from when your mom was pregnant with you all the way up to the current moment when I'm meeting you. And then we unfold it from there and we keep communicating. And in that communication, we deal with current events and we figure those out. And when the current events kind of die down, and not, I mean, they always come back up. But when the client stops talking about current events because they want to dig in a little bit more on themselves, that restorative retelling and figuring out creates this self-understanding that is just so precious. And from that self-understanding, they definitely make better choices and can change easier. So I've noticed that working with men and first responders, especially. Now, The other thing in working with men that I find myself doing is literally teaching them an effective communication formula because sometimes they don't tell me stuff and they'll be like, did I tell you this? And I'm like, no, you didn't. (laughs) That's a huge piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I don't get to interview your wife and your friends and your family and your supervisor and nor would I ever want to. I'm not investigating you. I'm treating you and everything is relevant from your perspective and your therapy, but teaching someone to communicate effectively is important. And so one of the things, obviously, in the communication formula is time. So we know that we have this time in the week, this, you know, 50 minute, 50 to 55 minute chunk of time that we know we're going to get together. And these men tell me what they're thinking and sometimes their feelings. And then they 
tell me what they wish was happening. So that's the natural formula for communication that they don't realize that they are not doing in their personal life um, and that they're not expecting other people to do with or for them. So if you're not getting it, I'm just going to explicitly say that the effective communication formula is, hey, I would like to talk to you about A, B, or C. When do you have time to do this? And men often spring conversations that are very uncomfortable onto each other, and it creates a lot of defensiveness and some posturing and boasting, and there's some puffing out of the chest. And right at that point, we're, we're no longer communicating, we're competing. So what I like to tell people is ask someone for their time, tell them what the topic is, so you're not holding in this domineering way the authority in the conversation it would be very alpha of you to let go of the authority and to be open in your communication, actually. So once you ask someone for their time and you're sitting down, you're, you're meeting at, at the scheduled time, you say, this is what I think, this is what I feel, and this is what I suggest. And that suggestion is always going to be based on what do you need, what do you want, and what do you prefer, and men have a really hard time with that because they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to um, bother anybody. But it's so important that they identify their needs, wants, and preferences. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But again, going back to the effective communication formula, you've got the time. You have the captivated audience when you're sitting there at that scheduled moment to say, I think that you are being unfair and it makes me feel so angry. I really suggest that you rotate me off the ambulance. You know, I need the time to restore and to recover. Staying at this busy station on the busiest ambulance for every shift during a year's time is just unwise, right? Now, some of you might be laughing and say that conversation's never going to happen, Sarah. One, we couldn't string the sentence together. And two, if we said it, someone would ask me if I'm some kind of sissy or if I can't handle my job. So, Again, we struggle with effective communication, and then we wonder why we have the problems. But we slowly integrate this into their lives through the therapy. And it starts, of course, with me. It starts by coming to your appointment at your scheduled time. You tell me what you think. You tell me what you feel. You tell me how you wish it would be. And then we start working on those needs, wants, and preferences and those people who can communicate with you in that way, in a mutual and reciprocal way, get to stay in your life. And those who disregard it, disrespect it, aren't able to do it, we start to create some distance from those people. Now, you can't always create distance from your supervisor, but it helps when you start to see your leader or supervisor more clearly. You stop taking it so personally if they can't communicate with you well, because you, you start to see you know, what's really going on. So that to me is a big part of men's psychology as well, is just learning to communicate in an alpha dominant, respectful way. Now, going back to the learning about your needs, wants, and preferences, I have to tell men and repeat to men often that your needs are necessary right? Food, water, shelter, hydration, sleep, rest, relax, restoring. Those are needs. You're not going to function very well without meeting your needs. Okay. 
So we can't get rid of those. You're not needy. You're human. What about wants? Uh, what about being wanty? <laughs> As I like to say, I'm very wanty. Uh, those are important too. And in men's psychology or the first responder world, you guys are notorious for saying, you don't need that. You want it. So, you know, shut up and suck up because you're not going to get your want met. But that's a horrible way to teach someone to live. Your wants are what make you unique. That's how I learn who you are. That's your identity. And maybe that's the issue you're working through and it won't always be a want. But you have to have that want and you have to meet it in order to get through it. So um, needs and wants are not in competition. Needs and wants are not in a hierarchy, you guys. They're separate things both of them significantly important to your human. Uh, which reminds me, you are not your job. And I have to repeat that constantly because men identify themselves and they value themselves by how they do their job and what they do and if it's done well. And sometimes they make incredible sacrifices. They retire as a divorced person, kids not talking to them, prostate cancer, heart attack, stroke, diabetes, no money. And it's, it's just an absolute shit show. And as I've said in other podcasts and certainly on my Facebook uh, page for the self-care path, retirement is a 24-hour day. They replace you before you're even gone. So please prioritize yourself, not your career, and identify yourself as you the self, not I am a firefighter. You know, I'm Sarah. And people ask me, what do you do? And I'll say, oh, what do I do for a living? What do I do to make money? I'm a therapist, right? But I am Sarah. So anyway, getting back to the point, because I'll drift away and keep going. Needs and wants and preferences are important. Now, preferences are you know, maybe something like, I like to leave early, maybe too early. I'm one of those people. If I have to be there at seven, I'll leave at six. I get to my office at 6.30. That gives me half an hour to sit down and kind of relax myself and organize myself and things like that. So I definitely prefer certain things. Um, but if I don't get that preference, it's okay. I can adjust. Regardless, I try to meet my preferences as often as possible. Uh, because that's how I self-care and that's how I make myself feel like I'm okay on this crazy place called earth. So teaching men to accept and admit what they need, want, and prefer is definitely a part of the therapy. Uh, the other thing that I do is teach people to cope. Teach men how to cope. Coping skills is huge, mostly because they want directions. A lot of men want me to say exactly how do you navigate trauma? How exactly do you navigate grief? How exactly or what should I do so I don't cry or get upset in this situation? Uh, how do I avoid a panic attack? And I always tell them, if I could stop an emotion from ever happening, I would be more popular and I would make more money. And I just don't. What I do is I teach men how to cope because we didn't do that when you were younger. We told you to rub some dirt in it and to shut the fuck up. So as adults, you look at me like, 
how in the hell am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do? Or like I mentioned earlier, when we're like, we expect men to be kind and communicating uh, very well and effectively with women and children, yet we don't give them any training for it. If they play with a doll and nurture a doll, we call them all kinds of names and throw them back into that, you know, you're not masculine enough uh, box. And that's a horrible place to be. Because like I said, you're ostracizing them. But if we would allow, you know, boys and men to express very simple human things like love, gratitude, kindness, compassion, and wisdom, we might be in a safer, less chaotic place. But again, I digress. I'm teaching men how to cope specifically with emotions Um, Otherwise, what happens because of their social training is they tend to become very stoic. And the definition of stoic for me is emotional constipation. And if you're constipated, we all know eventually you blow it out your ass and that doesn't feel good. So we don't need you blowing up. We don't need you ignoring, denying, minimizing, and numbing your feelings. And again, to remember, emotions are under the surface. I've said it before that like I have the potential to be angry. I have the potential to be sad. I'm just not right now. That emotion is there under the surface. If you trigger me, I'm going to feel the emotion and I feel it in two ways. I feel it psychologically and I feel it physically. And so when men feel their feelings and they have no idea how to process it and heal it or recover from it, there's that ignoring, denying, minimizing, numbing shit. And they get prone to anger problems, addictions, and relationships being ruined because of it. So how do we cope with emotions? couple things. Number one, I ask them regarding this situation, what is the worst part of the situation for you? Because that helps me narrow it down to a very specific point. And then I'll say something like on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being it's very upsetting to you, where do you rank it? And maybe they say it's a 3, maybe they say it's a 7, maybe they say it's 20. Either way, I kind of get an idea of how upsetting it is to them. Because a lot of times with men in my office, they're not showing how upset they are. They're telling me or talking about it being upset. They're removed from it a little bit. And so I might ask... What is keeping it at a three or what is keeping it at a seven? Because I'm trying to understand them a little bit more. So I'm putting my excavation hat on. I'm digging around so that we can deal with that worst part so that we can understand how bad is it and we can understand what is the thing that's keeping you stuck there. And again, the first thing I do is notice how are they feeling now that we're digging through their shit And with whatever they're expressing, I talk about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Usually there's a little activation there and I could see it in body language. Um, It could be the way that they clench their jaw. Um, Sometimes there's pain in the throat when you're holding back tears. So there might be like that swallowing movement in their throat Uh, We might have really antsy fingers or a bouncing leg, maybe some shifting in the chair, Uh, could be a lack of eye contact or extreme eye contact where their eyes are wide open and they're not blinking at me. So I know there's a little activation there. The sympathetic nervous system has already started dumping cortisol, 
catecholamine, stress hormones, adrenaline into the body. And if that's happening right then and there in my office, then I know that the situation itself was like a chemical hijacking of their body. So we talk about, once again, that emotions are feelings that are felt psychologically and physically. So the first thing that we do in men's psychology or with first responders, or at least therapy in my office, is we learn how to state change. We have to change from this super aroused state to a more comfortable one so that they feel a sense of power, so that they can see that they can calm themselves down. Because there's no sense in trying to talk, talk them down. It's very difficult when someone is activating a feeling or has an activated feeling and they're reacting to something to tell them something like, calm down, stop being so angry, stop crying about it. Um, That's a horrible thing to do. We don't state change that way. But what I will tell them to do is I want you to plant your feet on the floor and I want you to spread your toes and push your feet into your shoes and really connect with the floor or the ground And then I want them to sit up straight and I want them to align their spine and align their neck and head and pull those shoulders down from their ears. And I'll tell them, I want you to plant your hands on top of your thighs and squeeze your fingertips and then release them and push your palms down on your thighs and then release that. And then just notice your breath for a moment without interfering with your breath, just notice it. And then maybe once I have ask them to listen to the clock ticking or the highway that's near my office. Um, I'll have them take a nice deep breath in, expanding their chest, and we'll do Navy SEAL breath or box breathing just so that they can ground themselves and learn to ground themselves so that if they're ever in a meeting or in a situation like going into a fire or a domestic call, they have a sense of what it means to visually and conceptually ground the body and activate the parasympathetic nervous system so that we are calming the body by showing the body that we know how to use the mind to chill it out quite a bit. So another thing that I like to recommend for men is meditation. And some people think that, oh, like, what do you mean meditation? Is that some kind of weird prayer, religious, hippie-ass thing? Calm it down, dudes. Meditation is mental push-ups. If you haven't started meditating by now, you really should give it a try. Um, So I spend some time doing a lot of psych education, teaching about psychology as it's relevant to their career, as it's relevant to managing emotion through intellectual information, by learning about negative thinking and needing reality-based thinking, uh, that we need those thinking errors to be more reality-based and that their negative cognitions need to be positive. I teach them about behavior and how important it is to make choices toward a change when it's necessary to do so. That connecting with something spiritually, even if it's just the thought, the grant me, the serenity to know what I can change and what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. If that's your level of spirituality, awesome. So again, just going through, we work on giving them intellectual information, information about how to cope with negative thinking and change it to something positive or reality-based. We work with emotion by activating the parasympathetic nervous system through a state change. We start to choose physical expression, right, to do some kind of activity. Like if there's too much 
sympathetic nervous system activity going on. So you're activated and you're reacting and you're feeling overwhelmed. Some of you may have to go lift weights before that conversation. You might have to get on the Peloton and ride through. You might have to do some kind of activity or give it some time away from it to get the body in some kind of alignment. And then again, even using um, a spiritual thought or belief about how you would like to exist in this world. And again, I know I'm repeating myself, but for me, it's love, kindness, gratitude, compassion, and wisdom. So anyway, a lot of this is another word for it is called resource developing. So with men in the office, I like to give them tools for their toolbox so that they can use visuals and different skills to get them through something. And usually it's very simple, nothing complicated, um, because life isn't supposed to be that complicated. In fact, I tell them if it's very difficult, you're going down the wrong road. Um, There are pretty simple solutions. When things click into place, we know we're doing it, I think, right, if I can say that. So Another thing when it comes to men's psychology and coping with whatever it is they're going through and especially their feelings, sometimes it's important to talk about why. And as a therapist, as someone who loves psychology, I can get a little lost in the why. And I like to put the pieces together and I'll think in my head, well, that's because your mom was this way and your dad was that way and your siblings this way. And this happened to you when you were a kid. And then this happened when, you know, you were at work or blah, blah, blah. But that why actually isn't always as important to the healing process. It's fascinating, it's insightful, and it helps with self-understanding. So I don't want to devalue it. But it's mostly for men's psychology, I think, how in the fuck do I stop repetition compulsion? What do I have to do to stop being in this kind of psychological pain? So answering those questions brings me back probably to that open, candid, relevant discussion experience that I have with men in my office. And we talk a lot about how do you want to get better? What are you willing to do? Because whatever you're willing to do is going to increase your ability to do it. Now, if you're not willing to do what I'm telling you to do, then we can sit back and say, why do you think you're sabotaging yourself like this? Where is it coming from that you won't allow this choice to happen or that change to happen? Uh, And that definitely is a very valid stuck point. Um, But I think, once again, like I said, understanding men and their needs in therapy has been different, I think, than what I hear my colleagues talking about. And strangely, like my whole career has kind of gone down this way. Uh, I think I explained in very early on in the podcast that even when I worked at the Sexual Assault Service Center and the Domestic Violence Shelter, I focused on working with men. And I worked in a prison and it was all boys. I worked in a residential facility, all teenage boys. Um, my own extracurricular activities uh, were focused in like things like the rifle team and the drill team and the honor guard and the karate team uh, and the raider team. I was in Boy Scouts of America for crying out loud for four years. But anyway, I have definitely grew out of my tomboy phase and feel much 
more rooted and grounded in an androgynous personality. I also really enjoy my own femininity, but that's all beside the point. Um, I think what I really want to explain is that when I talk to some of my colleagues, there's a similar approach and yet it's different in a way. And I think that that's absolutely okay and valid. So if you're thinking, I'm a man, I'm supposed to be masculine, I'm not supposed to go to therapy, how is that going to help? How is talking going to help? Doesn't talking just complicate it more? And it's like, no, bro, it doesn't. We're just going to teach you how to be human so that you can cope. (laughs) Because somehow we fucked that up when you were a kid and through all the training that you went through. And, you know, psychology is a very important element or part of being a human being. So you might as well figure that out. Uh, so any hoozy, maybe the last thing that I would like to bring up as a female therapist working with mostly men is that I can validate this love language issue about physical touch and how real that is. Uh, it does definitely in the research as well as the experience seem to be that men feel love and affection and even calmness through physical touch. Not that women don't. Women definitely do. And this isn't a, oh, hey, wifey, listen to this part of the podcast. Sarah says you should touch me and have sex with me, and then I'll feel better and be nicer to you. That would be some bullshit right there. Um, But men aren't always allowed to talk about it uh, or cry about it or ask for help because then we consider something to be wrong with them. But when they want to bang or they want to fight, well, those are physical things. And we allow them that just like we allow them anger, but we don't allow them other emotions. And so anyway, I think that that physical touch and affection is important uh, for the first responders in my therapy office. But I also want to say if it is very important to you, Um, speaking of men's psychology, if physical touch is an important resource to help you balance your mood and your behavior, then my suggestion would be to learn how to communicate and to connect with the person that you want to be physical with. Now, most of you love to set goals and you love to achieve goals So if you would love to set the goal of having more sex or acquiring more physical touch uh, and physical affection, sometimes I look at the men in my office and say, how are you going to do that? And what are you going to do to do that consensually between the two of you? You can't be a douchebag and then hope that someone's going to want to do you any favors um, or connect with you in a meaningful way. So I I guess that is that kind of a funny thing to throw in at the end that that is towards the end here and I'm running out of time. I hope that this is a little bit helpful and insightful. I I hope it also helps maybe men who wouldn't otherwise go to counseling realize that yes, it's a little bit different, but yes, it can be practical. It's not all boohoo advice, suggestion. Oh, I hope you feel better types of therapy. I think sometimes the therapy in my office, and I think many of my clients would agree, is some kick-ass fucking therapy. I see them struggling. I see them being challenged by it. And I see them overcoming and adapting as well. 
and I see them starting to make choices along that therapeutic journey that serve them, but also make it easier to fit in on earth. And that's a good thing. So any hoozy. Thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. Again, I am Sarah Gura. My practice is the self-care path in Burr Ridge, Illinois, where I treat first responders. I'm going to remind you to do life so it doesn't do you. Take good care, and as always, stay safe.